Okay, we're going to be in the book of Judges today. Um, if you're new to the Bible, it's the seventh book of the Old Testament. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So if you would turn there, we're going to be in chapter six of the book of Judges, um, looking at the story of Gideon. Great story. We're only doing the first part of his story. Um, he's, he's several chapters in the book of Judges. And we're doing this as we continue that series on the names of God and Again, I don't know about you, but it has been a blessing to me to go through these. I'm going to actually share a story in a minute of a way that it has blessed me. Somebody asked last week if, like, could we get a card or something towards the end of this of, like, with all the names in Hebrew, the English name, like, where that's found so that I can have it in my Bible to pray to God, you know, in one of those names. And we are going to do that. Lisa's already been working on it, and so we're going to have something to give out if that's something you'd like to have. Now, I'm, you've, I'm sure you've heard it. It's all over our culture. I've actually talked about it before, but our culture right now is struggling with anxiety on levels never before seen in human history, never before seen. Um, from a study just last year, 27.3, so 27% of the U.S. population, from young people all the way up to adults at all levels, 27% struggle with high levels of anxiety. That's a little over a quarter getting close to one-third. You know, the COVID pandemic took those numbers and added about 25% to them. But what's interesting is they thought that after COVID, those numbers would dip back down, but they haven't. They've stayed at that really high rate. And according to another study from last year, several actually that I looked at, anywhere from 42 to 49% of young people say that they struggle with anxiety. Um, Almost double the levels of millennials and Gen X, triple the levels of baby boomers. So it's a big it's a big issue. Graham Davy, who's professor of psychology at the University of Sussex in the UK, author of the book The Anxiety Epidemic, says that anxiety is the major health issue of our age, and a lot of people agree with that. And you know, as people who follow Jesus, we are not immune. Right? We inhabit a culture that's struggling with anxiety, and it's you can it's you can catch it. Um, for some of us, genuine peace is something that eludes us at times, right? Um, I think for a lot of us, when things are going right, we, can exp- we have a sense of subtle peace, but once things go wrong, that dissipates and we lose it. So the big question this morning is what, or even better, who is the source of a deep, settled sense of peace? And I think you're here at church, so you probably know the answer to that is God, right? It's God. So I want to show you that this morning through a story, this story in the chapter 6 of Judges. So we're going to look at the story of Gideon. Before we get there, I need to set it up a little bit. If you don't know the story, the backstory, So Israel was in bondage in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years. God called Moses, who led them out of, the, out of Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. The intent was that was going to be a short trip, but they, because of their rebellion against God, it ended up being a 40-year journey. They ended up coming in the land. God gave it to them, mostly. took 20 years, and then we hit where we're at right now, which is this period of the Judges. And the whole, that whole book covers about a 400-year period, so that's the timeline. We're going to be looking at a story of a man who lived in the tribe of Manasseh. That'd be like a state for us, like the state of Kansas, in a town called Ophrah, and that's where it is located. You know, last week we looked at a story, the story of Jonah, who was a rogue prophet. The book of Judges is the story of a rogue people. It's like God's people out of control. He's brought them into the land. He settled them there. 
but it says very poignantly in Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25 that in those days, all the people, they did whatever was right in their own eyes. That's how they lived. And so what's interesting is in the book of Judges, we find this cycle happening because God had told them when they made the covenant after being led from Egypt, He said, if you, if you, if you love me, if you make me the first love, don't worship other idols, especially the people you're going that where you're going to conquer their land. If you love me and listen to me and cling to me and obey to me, then you will have you will have a peaceful life there and nobody will oppress you, nobody from the outside. But he said, but if you turn against my covenant and don't obey me, then I'm going to let people come in to oppress you. So you will turn back to me because he's Yahweh Kana. He wants relationship, right? Um, so you see this cycle that the people will sin. They will start worshiping the idols of the people around them. And then when they do, God allows them to fall into servitude. They become oppressed by some outside nation comes in, invades um, and then in sorrow, they cry out like, Lord, we're sorry. Would you fix this for us? And then God brings salvation. He always calls a deliverer or a judge as they're called. But a judge is really a deliverer. It's a strong leader. It's kind of like a, a mini Moses to, to help set them free. And then once things get good again, kind of like us, it isn't long and they're back in sin, right? And you see this cycle 12 times in the book of Judges. So we're going to see that in just a minute, this cycle um, that's happening. So let's start in chapter 6. If you look in your Bible, we're going to be in verse 1. So Judges 6, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So here we are, we're in the beginning of this cycle, okay? And the Midianites, by the way, they're a nomadic people that lived south of Israel, as did the Amalekites, who we're also going to see in a minute. So that just gives you a sense of who we're talking about. So verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. If you ever go to Israel, like Pat and I got to in the hill country, it is full of limestone caves. And so the people are so afraid of them that they're actually leaving their homes and they're going and living in caves to hide from them. That's how strong the onslaught was and that's how great their fear was. So verse 3. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. That's kind of a way of saying from top to bottom, the whole country. They ruined their crops, and they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. They ravaged it. Verse 6, Midian, was so, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So here we are now in this kind of part of the cycle. They're crying out for help. So verse 7, when the, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. Your oppressors, I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the I am is your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. This is really interesting because in the first five chapters of Judges, every time they cried out for help, he sent a deliverer to help them. This time, it's like God's like, I'm getting a little bit tired of this, so I'm going to send you a prophet first to make sure you're clear on what's going on. So he sends this prophet first. 
But what I love about God is he's not just simply interested in pointing a finger and condemning them because this is Yahweh Kana. He is the God of passionate who pursues us, right? And so he's not just going to send a prophet, but he himself is going to show up here in the book of Judges. So I really love this. So verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat. Well, look who's back, the angel of the Lord. We've encountered him twice already this semester. He showed up to Elijah. He showed up to Hagar. We're going to see him again in a couple of weeks when we look at another of his names. Um, Again, I want to remind you, this is God himself that's showing up, specifically in the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus who is coming in a pre-incarnate form, who's coming to have this conversation with Gideon. So back to verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Okay, a few cultural details that I need to share with you that are going on here. Here is a photo of an ancient wine press from Israel with two young boys, 12, 13 is my guess, so you can kind of get an idea of the size of that, maybe how an adult would look compared to that. Um, it's big, but it's not super huge, right? And I want you to know, you, it doesn't take brains to figure this out. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. That's not what it's designed for. It's designed to, it's designed to crush grapes and to get, to get grape juice and wine from. It's not meant for threshing. If you wanted to thresh your grain, this is what it would have looked like. The whole community would have come together, just like kind of the Amish or the Mennonites these days. They would have gathered together. They would have, they would have harvested, not the whole thing, but part of it at a time, gathered the sheaves, brought it up here. They would have been doing everything, the whole process to, to separate and to winnow and to thresh their wheat. You can see kind of the grain over here on the left when it's separated. And they would build those threshing floors up on a high hill because they wanted to take advantage of the wind. Can you imagine doing this in Kansas? You'd be like stuffing your eyes all the time. Um, so they'd always build it up on a high hill because they wanted to catch the wind to help with that whole process. And here is actually a picture of this in modern Israel. Some people in modern Israel who are doing it. The th- stones, I could show you that these stones are common in ancient Israel where threshing floors were that contain the grain. So they still, there are people who still to this day who do this. So the question is, is why is Gideon threshing grain by himself down in a wine, wine press? And I would say there's two things we can see in this. Number one, they truly were impoverished. Their land had been ravished. That his crop was so small that all everything, the stalks and everything, fit in his wine press and he was trying to thresh in there. So his crop is not much because it's been ruined by the Midianites. But the other thing I think it shows us is he's down in there, pretty obvious, because he's afraid to death, right? He's scared to death of the Midianites. Nobody is up on their high hill threshing wheat because if you're up on the high hill, the Midianites are going to see you and come steal your grain. So he's down all by himself cowering in this wine press. So verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, to which he says, pardon me, (laughs) excuse me. Isn't that amazing? I love this, how God shows up and calls him mighty warrior. Um. How here he is cowering in a wine press, but this is what Jesus speaks into him because what he's speaking into him is a reality that that God sees in him, but that he does not see in himself. So I think that's really cool. I need to hear that, that he's saying, Gideon and me, you are more than you know. 
and Gideon and me, you are more than your circumstances. I'm here, I've shown up. Um, And I want you to know that's true of all of us, that you in him, you are more than you can imagine and you're more than your circumstances. I think we all need to hear that. So verse 13, back to 13. He says, pardon me, my Lord, he replied. If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Um, How like us? Difficulties come, fear takes over, and immediately you start assuming God has abandoned you, has left, right? That's exactly what he does. So back to verse 13. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? So first he's like, well, where's God's miracles for us? Which to me is interesting because there's five chapters of judges of miracles that have happened in his recent history. And he knows that, but he's totally forgotten that when he says that. But look at the rest of verse 13. And then he says, now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Two claims he makes. One is true, one is false. Which one is true? Which one? Uh, that's the false one. What's the true one? Yeah, he has given them in the hands of Midianites. The prophet said that. And the false one then is? Yeah, that he's abandoned us. That's the false one. Um, Interesting, Gideon obviously did not listen to the prophet that God had sent because the prophet was explaining that God has not abandoned you. You've abandoned him. God's not the one that left the house. You're the one that left him. So if he would have just paid attention, he would have known that. And as he'll figure out in a moment, he doesn't know this yet, but Gideon is actually having a conversation with God, and he's giving a theology lesson to God about the fact that God has abandoned them, and that's the very one he's talking to. Isn't that really crazy? I think God is so gracious and merciful, he sits there and listens to all that, and he could have just blown him out of the water, right? But he's Yahweh Kanah, he pursues. So he continues to engage him. So verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? This occurs so much in scripture, that's why I end the service. You are sent because God is ascending God to all of us. So verse 14, Go in the strength you have. I'm sending you to save Israel. And he's like, the second time, uh, pardon me, my Lord. Uh, you know, excuse me as he gulps. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. I, to- I totally get that. Have you ever felt that way? Insignificant. Not sure God can really use you for his bigger mission. And then verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. We're going to talk more about that one next week in the name of God next week. Verse 17, Gideon replied, I now have found favor in your eyes. Give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and I'm going to set it before you. He's starting to get a hint that this is not just somebody talking to him, that this may be actually God that's talking to him. So verse 18, and the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah, which is about 36 pounds of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and his broth in a pot, he brought out them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his, the staff that was in his hand. And here's what's really cool. We're going to hear some echoes of the story of when Jacob wrestled with God. Do you remember it said that God touched his hip 
I don't know if you remember, but that Hebrew word is a very light tip. I touch like so, it's so light you almost can't even tell it's there, right? When he touches this, it's the same thing with the tip of his staff. He just barely touches it. And look at verse 20, the rest of it. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, so now he knows who he's encountered. He's heard stories of the angel of the Lord and God appearing in physical form before. He knew that what he was suspicious of was true. It was God himself. So verse 22, when Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Like, whoa, God himself was standing before me and I saw him face to face. The exact same words Jacob said when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord with God. He said, I have seen God face to face at Peniel, the face of, the, of God. That's what that place meant. And verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace, 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 do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Shalom, and it's another of God's names. I am peace, or I am your peace, or the I am is my peace, and that's our name for God today. And then verse 24 ends, to this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So that altar stood for a long time. So I want you, what I want you to see in this story and what I love about this story is in the midst of great fear and anxiety, God shows up and he speaks his peace, his shalom into that situation. And though nothing has changed, absolutely nothing has changed in the, in the situation around him, the chaos is still all around him, God's word and his presence brings peace to Gideon so that he names that altar, God is my peace. And isn't that what genuine peace is? Though everything around me is wrong, that internally I can have this stability and this calm and this being at rest because everything with God is right on the inside, right? Isn't that what biblical peace is? A peace that's not defined by my circumstances, but by the God who is with me and my trust in the God who loves me and who calls me his own. That's what biblical peace is. So Yahweh Shalom. Can you say that with me? Yahweh Shalom. I am your peace. What a great name. I was thinking, like, I like to put images on these. Like, what to me is the ultimate image of being at peace? And that's it. It's me on top of a mountain. I don't know what it is for you. Um, actually, this is probably a better image. It's me in a hammock on, on a mountaintop, like around a lake. Um, some of you aren't mountain people or more beach people, so maybe for you this is the better image. Sitting on a beach is at peace. That is not a good image for me. I don't like beaches and oceans for very good reasons. So when I think of a beach, that's what I think of. Um, do you know those tiger sharks? They can swim in like three feet of water. Like that's just, you can be in water this deep and they can like take you under. So anyways, it's on a mountaintop for me. Six times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. Twice in Romans, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Hebrews. In 2 Thessalonians, he's called the Lord of peace. In Psalm 29.11, it says, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with what? With peace. And what about Jesus, who showed up to Gideon as Yahweh Shalom? What about Jesus? Well, Isaiah 9.6, one of the most famous passages, talking about the coming Messiah, says of him that he will be called, I mean, you know this, the what? The Prince of Peace. You know, God so badly wants to give us his peace. A peace that in Philippians 4, 7, it says this, a peace that surpasses human understanding. 
He so badly wants to give that to us. He wants us to live into that. But don't you know, (laughs) I don't know about you, I don't always live into that kind of reality, right? And don't you want to? Don't you long to be able to live frequently in that place of a peace that surpasses human understanding? I put this name off for a while. I love it. I love all of them, but I don't know about you. This is the easiest name to say. This is the easiest name to say. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. The easiest name to say, Yahweh Shalom, it's the hardest for me to live into. It's the hardest for me personally to live into. That's why St. Augustine said, it's one thing to see the land of peace from a wooded ridge. It's another to tread the road that leads to it. Boy, is that not right? It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to live it. So what's the key? Well, the key is what we just saw in this story. That the key to living a life imbued with the peace of God is God himself, right? It's God in his presence. It's Yahweh Shalom, the I am who is my peace. The only God at the center of my life and the center of my situation can I experience that peace. Without him, um, it's not possible. And that's why David Runcorn in his book, A Center of Quiet, said, Christian peace is not the absence of something, but the presence of someone who is with us in the midst of it all. And I want to tell you, I've tried. You cannot generate peace in and of yourself. Trust me, I've tried it. I'm an expert at trying that. Only he can generate peace in my heart. And that's why Jesus said this in John 14, 27. Peace, I live with you. My peace, I give you. It's a gift. And specifically why in Galatians 5, it says that when you have the Holy Spirit, the heart fruit that he produces in you, right, as a gift is love, joy, and it's peace. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And though it is a gift that he gives, it doesn't mean I just do nothing, right? I said that a couple weeks ago. I don't just lay in bed and by osmosis the peace of God engulfs me. That's not how it works. There are things I can do to receive a gift. And I want to talk about three ways, things I can do to receive this gift of peace. And it is to trust in him. It's to, it's to let go of control. And it's to take my thoughts captive. And so I want to take a few minutes and hit each of those, to hit each of those. So first, I have to trust in him. It's why Jesus said in John 14, 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust in me. Romans 15, 13, Paul wrote, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you, what? As you trust in him. In Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 to 4, this is Pat's go-to scripture when Anxiety is what's going on at the Forsyth house or in her life. Isaiah 26, 3 to 4. You will keep in perfect peace all who, all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the, is the eternal rock. Now, that, trust, that like trust him, it's like, yeah, right, right? I mean, you're like, I try, right? So let me, let me tell you how to do that. To me, the relationship with God is so much my my relationship with anybody. To trust somebody, don't you have to know them? Is that not true? You have to know them? Okay? Specifically, we have to come to know God. And I'll talk in a minute about how we do that. We must know Him as He truly is. And there's two qualities about Him. I think we really need to trust Him to need to to become just a deep-rooted conviction that God is good and that He is great, that He cares about me and that He is at work in my circumstances for me, 
and that he can do anything. Nothing's, not, nothing's impossible with him. That he's good and that he's great. Um, and for me to know those things, I've just got to be honest. I've got to be consistently daily in the Word of God. That's how I know him, and that's how I know this. That's why we're doing this study in the Word of God about the names of God. Because we learn in these names, we have learned that God is good. Have we not learned that? That he is Yahweh Rohi, that he's my shepherd, that he's El Roh, he is El Rui. He is the God who sees. We're going to learn next week, he is the God who is there. In, we're going to learn in a couple weeks, he is the God who provides, that he is the God who heals. He is the God of Peniel, the God who enters into my struggle with me. He is Yahweh Kana, the God who pursues me. God is good. And we've been learning his names to talk about his greatness. Um, El Shaddai, God is all-powerful. And Yahweh Tzabaoth, he is the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, who's there to go to battle. So that's why we've been doing this series. And as I come to know, know him more and more in the reality of who he is, I can consistently live in that sense of peace. Secondly, so trusting him by knowing him. Secondly, I receive this gift of peace by giving up control. Uh, and here I'm saying this, and here's Jay Vanderbilt. We've talked a lot about that, haven't we, Jay? My need to have everything go exactly how I want it to go and people to do everything I want them to do. Yeah, good luck with that, right? That driver that some of us have. I want you to know there's a very strong correlation between anxiety and control, a very strong correlation. That if you pull up, if you pull up, sorry, if you pull up by, by the roots, if you pull your anxiety up, control is probably the thing that's underneath it that's empowering that. You know, as long as everything is in my control or has the appearance, I'm at peace. But once things get out of control, I lose my peace. And when things get out of control and I lose my peace, so I get anxiety, then what do I seek to do? I try even harder to get control of the situation. I try to manipulate it, whatever. And the harder I try, and you know, the harder you try it, things get worse when I try to control it. Anxiety increases, and you end up in this downward control anxiety spiral. Have any of you ever been in that? I've been in that before. Um, I want you to know there is no peace in control. As long as I'm living my life like this, there's no peace. But as I let go of control, my hands open, and now I'm in a posture to receive and to trust. Do you see that? As I let go of control, I can receive from God the gift of peace and trust in Him. And I'm telling you, many of us desperately need to learn this. I'm going to come back to it at the end, but to quit trying to control our environments, our circumstances, our relationships, our spouses, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our worker, co-workers, our children. Some of us desperately need to learn that. And then third, so we trust in him by knowing him, we give up control, and we take captive our thoughts. We take our thoughts captive. And this is so important because of what that says on the screen. The disruption of peace begins in the mind. You know that? It begins in your mind. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us, take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. So armed with the truth of God, when I'm struggling with anxiety, I align my thinking with what this says about who God is, and that's where my peace comes from. I, I'm aligning intentionally my thinking. Like we learn from Ruth, I take what I know to be true about God, and I let that define my circumstances. Not like Gideon, who takes his circumstances and he creates a theology and misinterprets it and, and says, God is a God that abandons me, right? That's totally not true. So like Ruth, we take, we take our thoughts captive. And I want you to know, this thing is huge. It's been huge in my life, though I don't always do it perfectly well, not well at all half the time. 
That's why, again, I want to go back to Isaiah 26.3, Pat's go-to scripture in anxiety, where it says, you will keep in perfect peace. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are what? They're fixed on you. I think in the New King James, it says they're stayed on you, okay? It's that taking captive of thoughts. Paul knew this to be true, and that's why he wrote in Romans 8, 5, and 6, a profound text. Those who live according to the flesh and set their minds on the things of the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life, and it is what? It's peace, this setting of the mind, this fixing of yourself upon the Lord. I want to tell you, this concept of setting your mind, it's really important because, you know, you can choose what crosses your mind, but you don't have to choose, you can choose what stays there. Does that make sense? You can't choose what comes in, but you can choose what stays there. Or in the words of Jonathan Martinson, I love this, even though I don't like beaches, Thoughts and feelings are much like waves. We can't stop them from coming, but we can choose which ones to surf. We can choose which ones to surf. We have that ability. So we exercise self-leadership as David did in Psalm 42 and 43, where he says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. So this taking captives, I'm, doing, I'm exercising self-leadership. And with intentionality, I'm aligning my thinking with the word of God. And I'm doing what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, where he says this, what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about those things. Put this into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. It will be with you. Is that not great? A great promise? Let me tell you a quick story from my own life. And how this series has helped me with that, even before I preached it, because we started in February. And in January, I knew this was coming. I knew all the names. I had already been reading through the passages. I'd been thinking a lot about his names, trying to ground myself in them again. It, it had been a while since I had thought about that. And I had, there were some things that came up in January, some things related to just the church, some holes that were going to happen that humanly speaking, as we looked at it, we're like, there is no human way that's going to get filled, okay? And I started to have a lot of anxiety rise up in me to the point that one night, it was a Sunday actually, a Sunday night, early in the morning, I woke up with this just total fear that like, how in the world are we going to take care of this? I had no clue. But I knew where we were going and I sat there and I took my thoughts captive and trust me, I don't do this all the time perfectly, but I said, you know what? I know the truth of who you are. You are Yahweh Yaira. You are the provider. You can see this ahead of time. I can't fix it by worrying it, but you will provide in your way at the right time. You are my shepherd, right? You shepherd me. You care about me. You're the God who sees. You're the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing is beyond you. And it settled me down, and I was able to take those thoughts captive and align myself with the truth of God, and the peace of God came over me. And what's interesting, there's been a few times this semester that anxiety has kind of reared its head, but I've been able to, again, use the names of God to take my thoughts captive, and it settled me down. I, and let me tell you, I am not the poster child of this, okay? I'm not the poster child. It's come over a lot of years of failed practice with it. But I've I just been amazed how much these names of God, even before we got into them, 
that aligning my thoughts with that helped bring the peace of God into my life. And you know, everything I've just said about trusting him by knowing him, letting go of control, taking my thoughts captive, ultimately it's all about abiding in and with him. Everything comes back to abiding with him. You know that? It's making him the center of my life. It's pressing into him. It's being daily in word and prayer. It's actively seeking him, intentionally being in his presence. And I want you to know, like Gideon, you receive peace when you're in the presence of God. You receive the peace of God when you're in the presence of God. You receive the peace of God when you're in the presence of God. And that's why David says in Psalm 91.1, a text I love, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Almighty, whoever abides there, you live there, you're intentionally in that place, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Almighty will what? will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You'll be at peace in the shadow of the Almighty. That's why Amy Carmichael said, Blessed are the single-hearted, for they shall enjoy much peace. If you stay your soul on God, nothing can keep you from that clearness of spirit, which is life and peace. And that's why Paul, talking about that abiding relationship, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, with prayer and petitions, with asking, with thanksgiving. Give God your requests. And he will give you this peace that surpasses understanding and he will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. For some of our younger folk, but actually this could be anybody, new with Jesus, some of us that have been around Jesus a long time and don't know what it's like to live into his peace. I just want to say this all takes time you have to experientially, you're, you know, you're walking with him and you're putting the truth, you're trying to give up control, trust him by knowing him, take your thoughts captive, you're being in the word, and as you, as you go through situations and you see him come through and you see him meet your need, frequently in ways I don't expect, that you experientially, as you get those under your belt, you begin to trust him more and more. So it just takes time. So be patient with this process. I am still learning. I still feel like a beginner at it but you just keep pressing into him. Twelfth, we live in a world that is full and overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Do you know that? The people we meet on the streets, a lot of them are struggling with this. And more than ever, people need to see people who have a non-anxious presence to them, people who know Jesus, the Prince of Peace, people who know Yahweh, Shalom, the God of peace. Do you know people desperately need that? They need him, and they need to see people who model that and who can point, be a signpost towards him. So let us be people who are a people of a non-anxious presence. During COVID, I talked a lot about that idea. And that comes from an abiding relationship with him, a relationship where I'm enabled to receive the gift of peace as I trust in him, as I know him, as I'm giving up control, and as I'm taking my thoughts captive. And as I do that, my center, my life on him, he'll give that to me. Two books I want to recommend. Um, one that I'm reading right now is called The Cost of Control. It is written by a woman I actually met who lives in Durham where Carissa is and was in a Bible study group with her. And she talks about her control idolatry and how the Lord had to work that in her life. So if you're here and you struggle with control, I highly recommend this book. The other book I really recommend is Finding Quiet by J.P. Moreland. He was one of my professors in seminary and was one of the just... I felt like the most happy-go-lucky, just a friendly, kind guy. I love JP. In fact, 
my last year there, he won, he got voted by the seminary students as the best Bible teacher, the best professor that we had. He was a great guy. I did not know till just a few weeks ago that a while back, he went through this period of deep anxiety and depression because the two are frequently connected. And I mean, it was enslaving to him. And I was just shocked even to hear that about JP. But he ended up writing about his experience. And he, because he's a, if you knew this guy, he loves God. He walks with the Spirit, but he's a deep scholar. He taught, he read 44 books on this whole idea of anxiety and depression and God and all of that. And he wrote about the things that he learned and how he applied them to life. And I've just begun reading it. And what I've read so far, it's really good. So if you struggle with anxiety and depression, I highly recommend this book. So can we just take a minute and bow our heads in prayer? I just want to ask a couple of questions. This is with you and God. I'm really curious, what is your Midian today? What is your Midian? What's the circumstance that is most troubling you and stirring up anxiety in you right now? Is it a health concern? Finances maybe? Something at work? A broken relationship? Maybe an unknown future? Family member? you're in conflict with or you're concerned about a spouse, a child, a sibling, maybe it's something else. But I want you to just take a minute to tell God what that Midian is and I want you to turn it over to him. Offer that up to him. I want you to invite him into it and ask him to be at the center of it and ask him to be your peace. And then I want to ask one more question. I'm curious, what's the most important thing you learned this morning that maybe God was impressing on your heart because it's his spirit that does that? that you can put into practice this week. So take a minute, talk to him about that. If God really impressed something on your heart, talk to him about that. Commit that to him, that in dependence upon him, you will live into that thing. Father, thank you that you are the Prince of Peace, that you are, the pre- you are Yahweh Shalom, you are my peace. I thank you for the reality that you are with me in every situation, that you are in control, though I feel out of control. Lord, help us to calm our hearts by trusting in you, by abiding in you, by centering in you, coming to know you more through your word, abiding in that relationship, giving up our need to control, trying to fix everything ourselves by taking our thoughts captive to your word, aligning our thinking with that reality. Again, thank you that you are our peace. Lord, help us to live into that, to embody that, because the people in Emporia so desperately need to see this lived out. And may we be signposts to you. And I pray in your name, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, amen. And would you stand? I'm gonna do something I don't do very often. I wanna send you with a benediction. And this comes from the words of Paul in the New Testament. From Romans 15, 13 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him 
so that you will overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way, at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you all. And to that, God's people said, amen. So 12th, you are sent to live under Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace. All right.